There you were, Lord. And here you are. Thanks for the worship team ushering us into your presence and giving us eyes to see you. Let us remain there with our eyes fixed on you as we open up your word now and invite you to continue to shape and equip us as your people. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Worship team, wow, awesome, thank you. What a sweet way to come into worship. All right, Covenant family, this is what I'd like you to do as we begin. I'd like to just ask you to pray with me and do that. Just close your eyes and, and put your hands out in front of you. Open them up and offer them back to God. Ask God to make your hands into instruments of his love in this world. To make your hands his hands. Lord, that's our prayer as we come into the morning. Well, earlier this week on Veterans Day, we had the opportunity to pause to just remember and appreciate those who have served our country in our military, specifically to protect our country and its freedoms. But we're also grateful for all of those who put on a uniform every day to serve, our police officers, our firefighters, anybody who makes sacrifices for the common good. Well, you know this, in the military, the highest honor of all is when a soldier lays down his life for the sake of protecting a fellow soldier. It's called the ultimate sacrifice. And there are countless examples. Here's just one. Last year, Travis Atkins was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for sacrificing his life for his unit. Serving with the 10th Mountain Division in Iraq 13 years ago, Atkins and his convoy came upon two men who were planting explosive devices along the side of the road. So Atkins had his unit pull over, and he and several of his men got out of their vehicle, and they approached these two men. One of the two started fumbling with his jacket, and Atkins realized that he was wearing a suicide vest and was reaching for the pin. Without a moment's hesitation, as soon as he realized what was happening, Atkins rushed forward, he threw the man to the ground, and dove on top of him, covering him with his body just as the explosives went off. And by doing that, he laid down his life for his fellow soldiers, and he saved three of their lives. You know this, at the very heart of the Christian faith is a sacrifice just like that one. Jesus laying down his life, dying on the cross for us. Jesus talked about it himself, John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And those who followed after him and wrote about him afterward talked about it often as well. There's so many examples in scripture. Just one, Paul writing in his letter to the Roman church, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' death on the cross, his life in exchange for ours, his ultimate sacrifice, as you know, stands at the heart of the Christian faith. That's why the cross is the primary symbol of Christianity. So let me just pause here for a moment and let this get really personal for us. Imagine that you were Sand Io or Michael Christel or Travis Robert Shaw. 
and you had just watched your squad leader, Travis Atkins, Atkins, throw his body on this other man in order to save your life, what would you feel? Many of you are followers of Christ. You have come to a place of, of believing that Jesus died on the cross for you, in your place, his life given for yours. I just want to encourage you to let that sacrifice impact you all over again this morning. Let it move you to worship and to gratitude. Others of you are not followers of Christ yet. You are still exploring the faith. I hope that this could be a moment of dawning insight for you. Christianity isn't about going to church and trying hard to be good and so that hopefully God will love you one day. Christianity is about God loving you so much that he couldn't help but give, send his son to die for you, a sacrifice his son gladly agreed to make in order to bring you into relationship with a loving God. Put really simply, here is the state of things spiritually for every single human being. God made us to live our lives for him and in relationship with him, that's why we exist. But we have all chosen, every one of us, to live our lives for ourselves instead. And we've all fallen short of God's glorious standard for our lives. So the just penalty for that rebellion and our sin against our creator is our lives. But because God loves us so much, he sent Jesus to take our place, to rescue us from ourselves, taking upon himself the just penalty for our rebellion instead of, ask, instead of letting it fall on us. So if we come to a place of believing that his death was for our sake and receiving the gift of our reprieve, our forgiveness and reconciliation with God that he purchased with his life, then we are rescued by his death from our death into life. We're also brought into a loving community of others who have taken that same step of faith and who God gives us to encourage us and to give expression to his love for us. So what is keeping you from taking that step right now? From stepping through that door that is Jesus into a life that is rich with God. Let me just stop a moment and give all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, a chance to just talk to God for a moment about the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place. Jesus laid down his life for you. How are you moved to respond to that? What do you want to say to God right now? Okay, that's the important starting point of our conversation this morning, but there's more. Because it turns out the sacrificial death of Jesus is crucially important in Christianity for two reasons, and not just that one. Jesus' sacrifice is the heart of the Christian faith. His death on the cross is what makes it possible for us to receive forgiveness and to be in relationship with God. But Jesus' sacrifice is also the heart of the Christian life. His sacrifice becomes the pattern, the example of how we are called to live our lives as his followers. 
Some of you have heard me tell before of the time when I was in college and I went to spend some time on Christmas vacation with my good friend Doug Viser, who lived in Denver. I was an atheist at the time, and both of his sisters, Doug as well, and his mom and dad, they were all devoted followers of Christ. I vividly remember one, vividly remember one specific moment from that visit. For weeks, I had been reading the 1,100-page-long book, Atlas Shrugged, by Ayn Rand. Rand was an atheist philosopher who advocated what she called the virtue of selfishness. As a self-centered atheist, I loved it. Thinking about myself ahead of everybody else, what a great way to live. Well, one day, I finally finished the book, closing the cover just as I was called to dinner. When I got to the dinner table, Doug and his sisters were already in the middle of a conversation. As I listened, I realized that they were talking about how they could become more selfless. The more I listened, the more, listened, the more flabbergasted I became. Finally, I just blurted out, what are you guys talking about? Throwing your life away on others? That's the moral equivalent of suicide. Doug smiled and he said, David, we are followers of Christ. That's how he lived, and that's how he calls us to live. That's the connection that Paul makes in the passage that is our focus today. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You may remember that John made exactly the same point in chapter 4 of 1 John, which we looked at just a few weeks ago. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice who would atone for our sins. Beloved, if that's how God loved us, we ought to love one another in the same way. One chapter earlier, John sums it up even more memorably and poignantly. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Incidentally, that's the passage of scripture that God used to confirm my growing sense of call to full-time ministry. I was riding up the elevator to my office in the Procter & Gamble building in Cincinnati, and I was in my mind going over my memory verses, and God, by his spirit, just sort of lifted those words off the page, and I knew what he was calling me to. I think this is obvious, but I think it's really helpful for us to say nonetheless. When the Bible says that Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean we're supposed to go literally die for each other, though there might be a few of us who might actually be called upon to do that in our lifetime. We're not being called to die a death of sacrificial love. We are being called to live a life of sacrificial love, exactly as Jesus did. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus didn't just lay down his life by the way he died. He laid down his life by the way that he lived, and we're called to follow his example. So what was his example? How exactly did he do that? Well, if you turn to the biographies that are preserved for us, the biographies of Jesus that are preserved for us in the New Testament, the four books that are called the Gospels, you open them virtually anywhere and you will see Jesus living and loving sacrificially. Let me just give you uh, 
an, uh, an almost random example. If you were to flip to Matthew chapter 14 and 15, if you've got your Bible with you or your device in front of you, you might just go there with me, and I'm just going to flip through the pages real quick. Matthew 14 and 15. As we flip through these two chapters, you're going to begin to see immediately what his life of day-to-day sacrifice looked like, constantly setting aside his own needs for the sake of others. 14, okay, so wait, when the chapter begins, Jesus is ministering in the Galilee region, and he has just learned that his cousin John, the Baptist, was beheaded by Herod. Now, I don't think we, we often stop to think about how deeply that would have impacted Jesus, not only his loss, but also the foreshadowing of his own coming sacrifice. 14.13, when Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place to wrestle this through. But hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick, all of them. And eventually, after several days of uninterrupted ministry, he performs the miracle of feeding 5,000 of them. 1422, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, finally. But then, when he saw the disciples were in trouble out in the water, he walked out to them to comfort them. And then when they landed on the other side again, immediately he was surrounded by crowds who wanted to to be healed by him, and he did that. 15.1, right on the heels of this, he has to wrangle with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are calling his teaching into question. 15.21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to a region of Tyre and Sidon. He goes to another country. But even there, in the next country over, a Canaanite woman comes to him and asks him to heal her sick daughter, which he does. 15.23, leaving that place, Jesus, oh, sorry, 15.29, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee And then he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. But once again, great crowds came to him, bringing their lame, their blind, their crippled, their mute, and many others, and laying them at his feet, and he healed them. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people, and I don't want to send them away hungry, after which he feeds 4,000 more of them. 1539, and Jesus sent the crowd away, and he got into his boat, and he went to the vicinity of Magadan. And lo and behold, there are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who come to Jesus and they test him. After that confrontation, we're told, Jesus left and went away again. And so the pattern continues. What do you notice just in those examples from those two chapters? Isn't it the way that Jesus keeps saying no to his own needs and keeps putting the needs of others ahead of his own even when it costs him deeply? That is the essence of biblical love. Sacrifice putting you ahead of me, even when it costs me. The most common word for love in the New Testament is agape. And it never means something like how we feel about someone. It doesn't describe a feeling. It describes a choice, a costly choice. It always means putting the needs of someone else ahead of our own, even when it costs us. So every time we come across the word love in the New Testament, it would be appropriate in our minds if we added the word sacrificial in front of it so we get an even deeper sense of its real meaning. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us sacrificially and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
Sacrifice isn't just about dying for others, it is about living for others. So when we say that we believe that God wants covenant to be known more for its love than for anything else, we're not talking about how we feel about the people God put around us. We are talking about what we are doing. We are saying we are called in practical, visible, tangible ways to accept others, no matter how unacceptable we may find them, because that's exactly how Jesus accepted us, to forgive others no matter how much they have wronged us or caused us offense, because that's exactly how Jesus forgave us, and to love others sacrificially, no matter how much we may want to put our needs first, because that's exactly how Jesus loved us. So what is God saying to you? What is God saying to us right now? God doesn't just want this to be a concept. He wants this to be the way our lives actually look. So as I was praying about how to make this really practical and personal for us this morning, it led me to think about my hands. Actually, God led me to think about my hands. I woke up about a week ago and realized that I was writing a poem in my sleep of all things. And the only word that I could remember was the word fist. But I had the basic idea of it in my head, so during my devotional time, I wrote another version of it. It's called, What is the Opposite of Fist? What is the opposite of fist? A fist, life gripped, but mercy missed. A closed lump, a hard stump at the end of a wrist. What is the opposite of fist? Must be a cupped hand. A cupped palm, an upturned hand, life released, but, here's the twist, a river full, a fountain overflowing, mercy and truth, running together, goodness and peace, have kissed. What's the opposite of fist? Whatever it is, I want to be it. It's a life that's not to be missed. This week, as I was preparing my message by flipping through the Gospels and looking for examples of how Jesus lived a life of sacrificial love, I began to notice how Jesus showed his sacrificial love through his hands. So I started back at the beginning, and I began to look more carefully, and I wrote down a list of every time Jesus touched someone or his hands are mentioned, and I found 29 times. I'd really encourage you to do the same thing. The Gospels end with the most obvious way that Jesus demonstrated sacrificial love through his hands by pointing to the death that he died. Jesus showed his sacrificial, his scarred hands to his disciples after he died on the cross and then he rose from the dead. But there's so many other ways that Jesus demonstrated sacrificial love through his hands by the way that he lived here are just a few, reaching out and touching the leper who asked to be healed, blessing the five loaves of bread and breaking them and distributing them as he feeds the thousands, placing his hands on children and blessing them, pointing to the disciples when his family comes to take him home because they think he's gone off the deep end and saying to them, you are my mother, you are my brother. Catching impulsive Peter by the hand and rescuing him as he's about to sink into the water 
touching the coffin of a widow's dead son, halting the funeral procession, and raising that boy back up to life. Writing in the sand as he lets the conviction of sin settle over a crowd of self-righteous accusers who have dragged before him a woman caught in adultery. Washing the feet of his disciples the night before he dies, and touching and healing the severed ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, who Peter attacks when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Just a few of the examples. And then I came across this passage, which I had vaguely remembered and was sort of hunting for. And it is absolutely boggling when you think about it. As you think about all the people that Jesus healed. Luke 4.40, after sunset, all who had friends who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus He placed his hands on every one of them and healed them. Again and again and again, Jesus' life of sacrificial love showed up in his hands. They were already marked by sacrifice long before a nail was driven through them. What about us? It is through the hand that the heart speaks. Over the past couple weeks, I've slowed down and begun to notice some of the things that I do with my own hands and what they say about what's going on in my own heart. Some of the ways I use my hands reflect ways that I am just thinking about myself, like pushing the button on the remote to turn on the Colts game, or using a spoon to scoop ice cream straight out of the carton into my mouth, or clicking on the buy now key at Amazon and getting something for myself, or picking up the paper instead of the dishes that need to be put away, or raising my hands in exasperation when a conversation with Sharon isn't going the way that I want it to go. To all of which I say, of course, Lord, I can do no better apart from you and your gracious work in my heart. And I think of some of the ways that I use my hands that reflect in positive ways how I am thinking about others as God prompts me, such as putting on my mask as a way of showing love, making coffee and making the bed in the morning, picking up after dinner and washing the dishes, holding the door for someone at the store, Carrying a pan with a dinner that Sharon has made across to a neighbor, putting together some prefab furniture for my son and daughter-in-law's new apartment, working with other neighbors to rake the yard of someone whose life is so challenging right now that the leaves in their yard is the last thing they're thinking about, leaving anonymous goodie bags on the front steps of a number of our neighbors, to all of which I say, thank you, Lord, for taking me out of myself in those moments and giving me eyes to see others. So what is the story that your hands tell? What do the actions of your hands tell about the state of your own heart? As we pray together about becoming a church known more for its love than for anything else, I think we would do well to spend some time this week watching our hands and studying the story that they tell. In the Amplify Guide this week, We're going to encourage all of us to follow an ancient practice of ending each evening with a prayer of examination before we go to sleep. 
The pattern of using the evening hours to look back over the day and to invite God's perspective on it, called the examine, is an ancient practice. It's something that traces all the way back to the very first centuries of the church. It's a time to notice those places where we saw God working and heard his invitation and were faithful to, to say yes to God and cooperate with him. And it's also a time to confess those places where God was clearly at work, but we missed it. And we failed to be faithful to his nudgings and his promptings. So I'm going to ask you to join together with me in an examanus, an examination of our hands each night this week to do three things. First, to ask God to show us where, because of our inherent bent in upon ourselves, we put ourselves first and used our hands to serve ourselves and to confess confess that we can do no better apart from God's help. Second, to ask God to show us where, by the grace of God and at his prompting and by his power, we used our hands today to love someone even when it cost us and to thank God for these evidences of the Spirit forming the likeness of Christ in us. And then finally, to ask God to make us, as the anonymous author of the spiritual classic, Theologia Germanica says, to be to God as his hand is to a man, to be as quick to respond to the promptings of God's love as a man's hand or a woman's hand is to follow that person's own decision to move that hand. Yes, we were called to follow the example of Jesus in laying down our lives for others. But that doesn't mean that the burden rests on us. It doesn't. As followers of Jesus, we believe that the Spirit of God resides within us. And he is already in the business of equipping us and empowering us to live a life of sacrificial love because that is his own heart. And that is the heart that he wants to form in us. A sacrificial life doesn't start with our effort. It starts with gratitude. Jesus laid down his life for us. And it starts with our prayers, our invitation, asking God, according to your power at work within us, do in us and through us immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine in order that you might be glorified in the church. The more we are aware of how we are using our hands throughout each day, the more we will become attuned to the way that God intends to live his life through us. And the more we will be moved to invite God to use our hands as if they were his own to bless and serve those that he places around us. So let me invite our worship team to come back up on the platform. And as they come up, I just want to ask us to close with the same prayer that we began with. I invite you just to close your eyes, to hold your hands out in front of you, and to open them up, and to offer your hands back to God, asking him to make them instruments of his love in this world, asking him to make your hands his hands.